Hello, this is Jeremy Morlock, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the Thursday, June 1st, 2023 edition of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. A Poisonous Cold War Remnant That Still Escapes a Solution By Ralph Vardabedian, reporting from Richland, Washington. From 1950 to 1990, the U.S. Energy Department produced an average of four nuclear bombs every day, turning them out of hastily built factories with few environmental safeguards that left behind a vast legacy of toxic radioactive waste. Nowhere were the problems greater than at the Hanford site in Washington state, where engineers sent to clean up the mess after the Cold War discovered 54 million gallons of highly radioactive sludge left from producing the plutonium in America's atomic bombs, including the one dropped on the Japanese city of Nagasaki in 1945. Cleaning out the underground tanks that were leaching poisonous waste toward the Columbia River just six miles away and somehow stabilizing it for permanent disposal presented one of the most complex chemical problems ever encountered. Engineers thought they had solved it years ago with an elaborate plan to pump out the sludge, embed it in glass, and deposit it deep in the mountains of the Nevada desert. But construction of the five-story, 137,000-square-foot chemical treatment plant for the task was halted in 2012 after an expenditure of $4 billion, when it was found to be riddled with safety defects. The naked superstructure of the plant has stood in mothballs for 11 years, a potent symbol of the nation's failure nearly 80 years after the Second World War, to deal decisively with the atomic era's deadliest legacy. The cleanup at Hanford is now at an inflection point. The Energy Department has been in closed-door negotiations with state officials and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, trying to revamp the plan but many fear the most likely compromises, which could be announced in the coming months, will put the speed and quality of the cleanup at risk. The government now appears to be seriously considering whether it will be necessary to leave thousands of gallons of leftover waste buried forever in Hanford's shallow underground tanks, according to some of those familiar with the negotiations, and protect some of the waste not in impenetrable glass, but in a concrete grout casing that would almost certainly decay thousands of years before the toxic materials that it is designed to hold at bay. The Energy Department is coming to a big crossroads, said Thomas Grumbly, a former assistant secretary at the department who oversaw the early days of the project during the Clinton administration. Successive energy secretaries over the last 30 years, he said, have slammed their heads against the wall to come up with a technology and budget that would make the problem go away, not only at Hanford, but at other nuclear weapon sites around the country. Plants in South Carolina, Washington, Ohio, and Idaho have helped produce more than 60,000 atomic bombs and have tons of radioactive debris that will be radioactive for thousands of years. And unlike nuclear power plants, whose waste consists of dry uranium pellets locked away in metal tubes, the weapons facilities are dealing with millions of gallons of peanut butter-like sludge stored in aging underground tanks. Two million pounds of mercury remain in the soils and waters of eastern Tennessee. Radioactive plumes are contaminating the Great Miami Aquifer near Cincinnati. At site after site, the solution has come down to a choice between an expensive, decades-long cleanup or a quicker action that leaves a large amount of waste in place. Hanford, some 580 square miles of shrub-step desert in south-central Washington state, is the largest and most contaminated of all the weapon production sites too polluted to ever be returned to public use. But the problem is urgent given the risk of radionuclides contaminating the Columbia River, a vital lifeline for cities, farms, tribes, and wildlife in two states. The search for a solution has dragged on for so long 
that there is pressure to produce some result for all the massive spending, even if it does not meet past expectations. That could mark a dramatic retreat from long-standing promises to nearby residents who have experienced thyroid reproductive and nervous system tumors linked by researchers to exposure during the era of plutonium production, that the government would adhere to the highest possible cleanup standards. The negotiations between federal and state officials have involved stretching out the cleanup schedule and using grout instead of glass to stabilize about half of the lower-level radioactive waste taken from the site, as well as thousands of gallons of waste stuck in the tanks when the rest of the high-level waste is removed. The potential for a compromise that would allow some of that waste to remain in the bottom of the tanks has set off a sharp disagreement among experts. Some say using grout to encase it would be a scientifically safe, economical solution. Critics warn that the waste could outlive the grout and seep out again in future centuries. Energy department officials say that any plan adopted will be sufficient to render the site safe for future generations, and that any waste left behind would pose no threat to human health. Brian Vance, a former Navy submarine captain who's the department's site manager at Hanford, said the original expectations ran into formidable scientific and financial obstacles. He said engineers were trying to find a solution that was both safe and possible. If you think about the decisions made in the 1990s, the project plan was quite different, he said. It required unproven technology that was easy to make on the drawing board, but hard to make as you progress and see the realities. Mr. Grumbly said he presented the Clinton administration years ago with budget estimates of hundreds of billions of dollars to clean up former nuclear weapon sites around the country. Officials at the Office of Management and Budget told him to never show them publicly, he recalled. They've underprioritized it, he said of the federal government, noting that even now the Biden administration had not nominated an assistant secretary to oversee the cleanup. As it stands, the job of treating the tank waste at Hanford alone carries an official price tag of up to $528 billion. At the current rate of spending, it could take centuries to budget and finish the project. Congress sent about $2.8 billion this year to the site, with about $1.7 billion allocated to cleaning up the tanks. But there has been relatively little real progress. Gary Brunson, the Energy Department's former engineering director at the waste treatment plant, said the cleanup had been a failure. He and two other technical managers filed a whistleblower suit in 2013 against the chief cleanup contractor, Bechtel, and its partner, accusing the company of doing defective work and then illegally lobbying for budget increases. The suit was joined by the Justice Department and settled in 2016 for $125 million. Putting a focus on treating less dangerous, low-level waste faster would be part of a significant retreat in the mission, in Mr. Brunson's view. The whole purpose of that plant was to treat the high-level waste, he said. They couldn't do it so that they are treating low-level waste. They don't have a comprehensive plan, so they are making up these interim goals. The original architecture for immobilizing the tank waste was to chemically separate it, using the now mothballed treatment plant, into low- and high-radioactive streams. Then, two separate melter plants, human-made volcanoes that operate at a temperature of lava, would encase both in glass. But precisely how to do that safely has proved elusive. They have built one of the most complex mousetraps in the world, Mr. Brunson said. It will never work. The reality, he said, is that the 54 million gallons of sludge will most likely never be removed. He believes it will be grouted and left in place for future generations to deal with. Construction of the chemical treatment plant was stopped by former President Barack Obama's energy secretary, Stephen Chu, amid allegations that the process could lead to explosions of hydrogen gas and spontaneous nuclear fission. 
The U.S. Government Accountability Office has recommended abandoning the plant, owing to the costs of ever making it work. They could build an elevator to the moon. I would put the pre-treatment plan in the same category, said Nathan Anderson, a director of the GAO's environmental team. Then comes the issue of permanently stabilizing the waste. Almost no one disagrees that the most dangerous high-level waste must be encased in glass and buried in a geologically stable repository, such as Yucca Mountain in Nevada, a site that for decades has been politically off the table. But what to do with the lower-level wastes is less certain, and that is an important part of the current negotiations. The GAO concluded that grouting much of it would be just as environmentally safe as putting it in glass, get the job done faster, save billions of dollars, and pose a lower risk of an industrial accident. The Washington Department of Ecology's Hanford Project Manager, David Bowen, considers the low-level waste a safety risk and wants it shipped out of state. There are even bigger stakes in dealing with the high-level waste. Even though most of it will be vitrified, engineers estimate that up to 1% of the radioactive sludge could be left behind when most of the waste is removed according to Energy Department documents and state officials. Energy officials say that radioactivity levels of any residual waste would be relatively low, and that grout would prevent the tanks from collapsing as they rust. But the total waste left behind could be in the hundreds of thousands of gallons, and critics say it could be highly dangerous. The closer you get to the bottom of those tanks, the more radioactive, toxic, and dangerous the waste is, said Jeffrey Fettis, a lawyer with the Natural Resources Defense Council which has sued the government over the Hanford cleanup. We would oppose it, said Nicholas Peterson, executive director of the watchdog group Hanford Challenge, which has long pushed for a safe resolution. There has been some progress. Cleanup workers have demolished contaminated buildings, cleansed soil along the Columbia, and stabilized seven reactors that made plutonium. But around central Washington, an area that is home to the state's famous grape vineyards and apple orchards, there is a growing sense of impatience. Leaders of the Yakama Nation, an 11,000-member tribe whose ancestral lands once included the Hanford site, say their 1855 treaty promised that tribe members would have the right to hunt and fish on healthy lands. Before the Manhattan Project, there is a handshake agreement that this area would be returned to the way it was, said Trina Sherwood, a cultural specialist in the tribe's natural resources department. How can we agree to leave that poison in the land? Yet returning the land to what it once was is an outcome that almost no one expects. There are parts of the site that will never be turned over, Mr. Vance, the Hanford site manager, said. We are going to be here a long time. DeSantis takes pokes at Trump, but cautiously. By Shane Goldmacher and Nicholas Nahamas Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida came to Iowa for his first trip as a presidential candidate and made it plain that he was done being... Donald J. Trump's punching bag. After absorbing months of attacks from Mr. Trump that went mostly unanswered, Mr. DeSantis has borrowed one of his rival's favorite lines, I'm going to counterpunch, and jabbed back. He called one of the spending bills that Mr. Trump signed grotesque and accused him of increasing the national debt. He said the way Mr. Trump had sided with Disney in Mr. DeSantis's war with the entertainment giant was bizarre. He described Mr. Trump's criticism of the governor's handling of COVID as ridiculous, and he dared Mr. Trump to take a position on the debt limit bill pending in Washington. Are you leaning from the front, Mr. DeSantis said, almost teasingly, or are you waiting for the polls to tell you what position to take? A tricky balancing act lies ahead for Mr. DeSantis. 
All those comments came not on stage in his first campaign speech before hundreds of Republicans at an evangelical church, but during a 15-minute news conference with reporters afterwards. He did not mention Mr. Trump by name when he spoke directly to voters in each of his first four Iowa stops, though he has drawn implicit contrasts. The two-pronged approach reflects the remarkable degree to which his pathway to the nomination depends on his ability to win over, and not alienate, the significant block of Republican voters who still like Mr. Trump, even if they are willing to consider an alternative. I don't like to see them battle and do smear campaigns, said Jay Shellhaas, 55, a professor of nursing who came to see Mr. DeSantis on Wednesday in Pella, Iowa. An evangelical voter, he said he was undecided on whom to support in 2024 after backing Mr. Trump in his past two presidential runs. Some themes have emerged in Mr. DeSantis's early broadsides. He has sought to question Mr. Trump's commitment to conservatism. I do think, unfortunately, he's decided to move to the left on some of these issues. His ability to execute his agenda. I've been listening to these politicians talking about securing the border for years and years and years. And his ability to win the 2024 general election. There are a lot of voters that just aren't ever going to vote for him. It was no coincidence that Mr. Trump arrived in Iowa on Mr. DeSantis's heels on Wednesday, in a sign of the intensifying political skirmish between the leading Republican presidential contenders and the centrality of Iowa in their paths to the nomination. Mr. Trump holds an advantage of roughly 30 percentage points in early national polls of the Republican primary. In a statement, Stephen Zhuang, a spokesman for Mr. Trump, said that Mr. DeSantis's first speech was, quote, crafted to appease establishment never-Trumpers who are looking for a swamp puppet that will do their bidding. Mr. DeSantis is seeking a challenging middle ground as he begins this new, more confrontational phase. He is trying to show voters that he is the kind of fighter who will not back down, even against his party's dominant figure. At the same time, he must avoid being seen as overly focused on Republican infighting. I'm going to focus my fire on Biden, Mr. DeSantis said at his kickoff speech on Tuesday night in Clive, a suburb of Des Moines, even as he stepped up his attacks on Mr. Trump. And I think he should do the same, Mr. DeSantis said. Advisors to Mr. DeSantis said his more assertive posture stemmed largely from the fact that he is now an actual candidate. But it is a notable shift. At a recent dinner with donors in Tallahassee, Florida, Mr. DeSantis was asked, when he would start slugging Mr. Trump, and he suggested he would not be doing so immediately, according to an attendee, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe a private conversation. For the third time in Mr. DeSantis's three trips to Iowa this year, Mr. Trump planned to follow close behind with a two-day swing of his own. In March, when Mr. DeSantis came for his book tour, Mr. Trump arrived days later in the same city and drew a bigger crowd. In mid-May, Mr. Trump had scheduled a rally to stomp on the Florida governor's trip, though he canceled at the last minute, saying it was because of the weather. It was Mr. DeSantis who one-upped him then, appearing at a barbecue joint nearby. The weather was so nice we felt we just had to come, Mr. DeSantis said to laughs in Clive. Mr. Trump is doing a local television interview on Wednesday, and on Thursday he will host a lunch with religious leaders in Des Moines after attending a breakfast with a local Republican group. He is also holding a Fox News town hall event moderated by Sean Hannity. Mr. Trump has been far from subtle in his attacks on Mr. DeSantis, calling him Ron DeSanctimonious, denouncing his leadership of Florida and lashing him from the left for past proposals to trim Social Security and Medicare spending. No matter how much mud Mr. Trump slings, 
Republican voters have tended not to punish him, a double standard that has long worked to his advantage. I guess he's got to respond in some way, said Tim Hamer, a retired Iowan who worked in banking and owned a lavender farm of Mr. DeSantis. Mr. Hamer, who was at the governor's event in Council Bluffs on Wednesday, said he had voted for Mr. Trump in 2016 and 2020, but was now leaning toward Mr. DeSantis. The point is, he added, don't descend to Trump's level. Among the issues over which Mr. DeSantis has explicitly broken with Mr. Trump is the legislation the former president signed that allows a pathway for nonviolent offenders to shrink their prison time. Last week, Mr. DeSantis called the measure a jailbreak bill. In stop after stop, Mr. DeSantis has also pointed to his ability to serve as president for two terms, unlike Mr. Trump, saying the next president could appoint as many as four Supreme Court justices. He said on Tuesday, I don't need someone to give me a list to know what a conservative justice looks like. Mr. Trump, whose appointment of the justices who tilted the Supreme Court rightward and overturned Roe v. Wade and cheered conservatives, promised in the 2016 campaign to pick a justice from a list that was created by conservative judicial activists, and he has promised to release another list ahead of 2024. Regina Hansen, who attended the DeSantis event in Council Bluffs, said she wished Mr. Trump and Mr. DeSantis would patch up their once-friendly relationship. But in the meantime, she said, she thought the best way for Mr. DeSantis to win over Trump supporters was to keep talking about himself, his record, and his family. I have a very positive opinion of him, more so now than I did before I came here today, Ms. Hansen said after hearing Mr. DeSantis speak. But Will Schottemann, who came to the rally with a copy of Mr. DeSantis's recent book, said he believed the governor needed to stay on the attack against the former president. I just think it's the right approach, he said, adding that he voted twice for Mr. Trump. He needs to contrast what he did with what Trump did. At his stops on Wednesday in Council Bluffs, Salix, and Pella, Iowa, Mr. DeSantis directed his verbal assaults at President Biden and kept his swipes at Mr. Trump more oblique. Our great American comeback tour starts by sending Joe Biden back to his basement in Delaware, he said in Council Bluffs. In contrast, Mr. DeSantis criticized Mr. Trump, a former reality television star, indirectly, though pointedly. The Bible makes very clear that God frowns upon pride and looks to people who have humility, he said. In recent days, Mr. DeSantis has seemed especially eager to discuss his handling of coronavirus, which vaunted him to national prominence. Mr. Trump recently unfavorably compared the governor's handling of the pandemic to that of former Governor Andrew M. Cuomo, Democrat of New York. Mr. DeSantis has expressed shock at this line of attack, arguing that closures and isolation measures instituted early in the pandemic did more harm than help. The former president would double down on his lockdowns from March of 2020, Mr. DeSantis said. Do you want Cuomo or do you want free Florida, he added. If we just decided the caucuses on that, I would be happy with that verdict by Iowa voters. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times and the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. When Chefs Are Honored and Investigated by Brett Anderson and Julia Moskin The chef Sam Four received an ominous voicemail message this month from an unknown number. The caller identified himself as a private investigator working for the James Beard Foundation. Later that day, Ms. Four found herself on a Zoom call, answering questions from him and another man. They said to me, we have an anonymous complaint we have to ask you about, she said. Ms. Four is a finalist in the James Beard Awards, 
which for nearly three decades have been considered the most prestigious culinary honors in the United States, the so-called Oscars of the food world. As the Me Too movement led to high-profile revelations of misbehavior and workplace abuse in the restaurant world in recent years, the Beard Foundation overhauled its processes to make the awards more equitable and diverse, and to ensure that chefs with troubling histories are not honored. Ms. Four is among the first subjects of an investigatory process created in 2021 as part of that overhaul, but in many ways she is the kind of chef the retooled awards are meant to recognize more fully. Early indications suggest that the new process is vulnerable to failure in several ways. While the awards have historically honored mostly white chefs serving European-derived foods in expensive urban restaurants, in fact, the other four finalists in the Best Chef Southeast category with Ms. Four are white men, her business, Tuk Tuk, is a pop-up that serves cuisine inspired by what she grew up eating in Lexington, Kentucky, as the daughter of Sri Lankan immigrants. In what she called an interrogation, the investigators asked her about social media posts she said she had made on both private and public accounts. Someone had sent them to the foundation through an anonymous tip line on its website. The men told Ms. Four that the posts potentially violated the organization's code of ethics, specifically that they amounted to targeted harassment and bullying. They included an Instagram post, she said, that was part of a domestic violence awareness campaign and others related to her advocacy for victims of sexual violence, including vague tweets about people the posts did not name. She said she told the investigators, We've been talking for 90 minutes about these tweets, and you don't know who I'm targeting with them. How is that targeted harassment? On Wednesday, after this article was published online, the foundation notified Ms. Four in an email that she had not been disqualified from the awards, which will be given out at a ceremony in Chicago on Monday. The investigation, it said, did not find it more likely than not that you violated the code of ethics. Even so, Ms. Four believes that what was supposed to be the honor of a lifetime could actually do her more harm than good. I realize that my presence is a good look for Beard, but I cooked my way across the country to get to this level, she said. Now all I've done can be dismissed because someone on the internet called me a bully? Started in 1985 to honor the food writer James Beard, the foundation established its Chef and Restaurant Awards in 1991. The foundation has identified itself more and more closely with chefs and restaurants over the years, riding the rise in popularity of chef culture starting in the 1990s. As the American public became increasingly fascinated by restaurants and the people who run them, the profile of the awards grew, the events became more glamorous, the brand partnerships more lucrative. According to IRS filings, the foundation's revenues jumped from $5 million in 2010 to $18 million in 2020. By making itself the chief arbiter of restaurant excellence, however, the foundation also made many of the restaurant world's most pernicious problems, inequality, lack of diversity and leadership, workplace abuse of many kinds, its own problems. To address those problems, the foundation established an ethics committee before the 2022 awards, along with a tip line in the pursuant investigations, to ensure that the awards would not celebrate chefs who failed to meet its standards. Brett Anderson, who co-wrote this article, was on the Restaurant Awards Committee from 2002 to 2012. The James Beard Awards are known as the standard bearers of excellence in the industry. We take that very seriously, said Claire Reichenbach, the foundation's chief executive. 
we've built a process with great intentionality that we think has rigor that reflects our values and our mission, and we stand by it. But it is unclear whether the foundation is up to the task of vetting the finalists. Kate Button, whose restaurant Curate in Asheville, North Carolina, won the Beard Award for Outstanding Hospitality last year, said the awards have a tremendous effect on restaurants, from reservations to staff morale to social media followers. They are effectively deciding that they will be delivering the judgment and the sentence, she said. They need to think about the gravity of their decisions. Since the awards began in 1991, chefs have questioned their fairness and the foundation's transparency and integrity. A scandal in 2004, in which the organization's longtime president was convicted of embezzlement and the trustees resigned en masse, did not help matters. In August 2020, as the culinary world struggled through the pandemic and Black Lives Matter protests unfolded across the country, the foundation stumbled again. Although the voting for the awards was already complete, it decided to cancel the entire awards program for the year. The foundation attributed the move to the ravages of COVID-19, but it soon leaked out the awards had been canceled for other reasons. None of the winners were people of color, and some finalists stood accused of verbal and physical abuse. Foundation leaders quietly proposed a revote, which outraged some awards judges who publicly accused the foundation of manipulating the results. Ultimately, no awards were given in the major restaurant and chef categories. The foundation then canceled the 2021 awards and embarked on an internal audit, which resulted in a sweeping overhaul of its board, mission, and processes. For 2022, the awards were rebuilt to consider not just culinary excellence, but also equity, leadership, sustainability, diversity, and other values aligned with the group's new mission. We are watching an institution self-correct in real time, said Eric Williams, the chef-owner of the Chicago restaurant Virtue and last year's winner for Best Chef, Great Lakes. The ceiling had to be cracked, the mold had to be reshaped, he said. The Ethics Committee and the tip line were part of that reshaping. If Ms. Four's case raises questions about whether the Foundation should be investigating the anonymous accusations against her, the case of Timothy Hansa's raises questions about what the Foundation does once it concludes its investigation. Mr. Hansa's, the chef and owner of Johnny's in Homewood, Alabama, is a finalist for Best Chef South, as he was last year. On May 10th, he received an email saying he had been disqualified from this year's awards. Based on the review conducted, the Ethics Committee found it more likely than not that you violated the Code of Ethics, the email read. It went on, You are prohibited from using the seal, logo, or image of the James Beard Awards, and from claiming any recognition from the Foundation in connection with the 2023 awards. News of his disqualification quickly spread on social media and in news reports. Mr. Hansas said that in a Zoom interview in April, a Beard investigator asked him about anonymous allegations that he yelled at employees and customers. In an interview with the New York Times, with his lawyer present, Mr. Hansas said he didn't deny the accusations to the investigators, but told them the incidents, as he recalled them, were not as severe as the accusers described. He also said that none of the incidents rose to the level of an ethics violation. The disqualification email he received does not reference specific allegations. I don't understand how one call can completely ruin the possibility of winning the award, Mr. Hansa said. But one of his former employees, Emily Heater, agreed with the disqualification, though she said she did not send the tip to the Beard Foundation. Mr. Hansa's hired her to her first job out of high school in 2016. 
In the five years she worked on and off at Johnny's, she said, he regularly yelled at customers and employees and even threw plates at her head. She said she quit three times because of his outbursts. I'm usually not a crier, but he'd yell and yell and yell at you until you started crying, and then he'll yell some more, Ms. Heater said. On one such occasion, she said, I looked out into the dining room and all the customers were silent. Mr. Hansas denied Ms. Heater's allegations in an email and said she was twice terminated based on her performance and, quote, simply did not return to work at the end of her final shift at Johnny's. The Foundation does not comment on specific ethics allegations in order to keep them confidential, but that confidentiality presents potential issues of its own. In order to maintain it, the organization does not remove the names of those disqualified from previously issued news releases, from the ballot, or even from the program at the gala. In other words, if Mr. Hanses hadn't gone public with his disqualification, he would have remained a Beard Award finalist as far as the public knew, and could even have attended the June gala in Chicago, scenarios the Foundation seems not to have considered. I think you've hit on one of the tougher issues in this process, said Steve Koch, a chairman of the Foundation's Governance Committee. We made a judgment that our goals and our mission are better served by coming out the way we did. It's even possible that Mr. Hanses could get the most votes in his category. In that event, the second place finalist would be declared the winner, the Foundation leader said. Ms. Four and Mr. Hanses said that the secrecy around ethics investigations also leaves the process vulnerable to being weaponized by candidates, competitors, or enemies, and that they weren't given a full opportunity to respond to allegations. The Zoom call was the only chance I had to defend myself, Ms. Four said. The ethics violations the Foundation investigates range from yelling at employees to sexual assault. No matter what an investigation uncovers, the Foundation said it would not publicize its findings or report them to law enforcement. Ms. Reichenbach said that confidentiality is necessary to protect the anonymity of the accusers and the reputations of the accused. We don't want to be publicly shaming people, she said. We are here to celebrate those who are winning. The blanket confidentiality angered some judges and members of the Chef and Restaurant Awards Committee, who weren't informed of the Ethics Committee's decision to disqualify Mr. Hansas. At least three judges resigned, including Vishwesh Bhatt. Mr. Bott is the chef of Snack Bar in Oxford, Mississippi, a past beard winner and a finalist this year. He was mystified that the foundation would keep information from judges that is germane to their duties as voters. You trust us to uphold these ethics, but then won't tell us when you find someone has violated them, he said. What is this, Yelp? Tanya Holland, a chef, restaurateur, and writer who chairs Beards Awards Board, was asked about leaving the names of disqualified finalists on the ballots and among those announced at the gala. I think this is an unfortunate example where we have to say, now we've learned something, said Ms. Holland, who is also on the board of trustees. Next year, we'll have to do better. Despite her feelings about the investigation, Ms. Forrest said she still planned to attend the award ceremony. She already bought flights and a ticket to the gala for her husband and said she can't get the tickets refunded. Whatever happens in Chicago, Ms. Four is proceeding with construction of her first brick-and-mortar restaurant, which she plans to open in the fall, another project she's been distracted from since the Foundation's investigation began. These people have no idea what it's like to be a woman of color in this business, she said. What they don't understand is that I exist despite them. Winning a beard wasn't even on my list of goals. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. 
Climate Crises Force Insurers to Recalculate by Christopher Flavel, Jill Cohen, and Ivan Penn. The climate crisis is becoming a financial crisis. This month, the largest homeowner insurance company in California, State Farm, announced that it would stop selling coverage to homeowners. That's not just in wildfire zones, but everywhere in the state. Insurance companies tired of losing money are raising rates, restricting coverage, or pulling out of some areas altogether, making it more expensive for people to live in their homes. Risk has a price, said Roy Wright, the former official in charge of insurance at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and now head of the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, a research group. We're just now seeing it, he said. In parts of eastern Kentucky ravaged by storms last summer, the price of flood insurance is set to quadruple. In Louisiana, the top insurance official said the market is in crisis and is offering millions of dollars in subsidies to try and draw insurers to the state. In much of Florida, homeowners are increasingly struggling to buy storm coverage. Most big insurers have pulled out of the state already, sending homeowners to smaller private companies that are straining to stay in business. A possible glimpse into California's future if more big insurers leave. State Farm, which insures more homeowners in California than any other company, said it would stop accepting applications for most types of new insurance policies in the state because of rapidly growing catastrophe exposure. The company said that while it recognizes the work of California officials to reduce losses from wildfires, it had to stop writing new policies to improve the company's financial strength. A State Farm spokesman did not respond to a request for comment. Insurance rates in California jumped after wildfires became more devastating than anyone had anticipated. A series of fires that broke out in 2017, many ignited by sparks from failing utility equipment, exploded in size with the effects of climate change. Some homeowners lost their insurance entirely because insurers refused to cover homes in vulnerable areas. Michael Soller, a spokesman for the California Department of Insurance, said the agency was working to address the underlying factors that have caused disruption in the insurance industry across the country and around the world, including the biggest one, climate change. He highlighted the department's Safer from Wildfires initiative, a fire resilience program, and noted that state lawmakers are also working to control development in the areas at highest risk of burning. But Tom Coringham, a research economist with the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, at the University of California, San Diego, who has studied the cost of natural disasters, said that allowing people to live in homes that are becoming uninsurable or prohibitively expensive to insure was unsustainable. He said policymakers must seriously consider buying properties that are at the greatest risk or otherwise moving residents out of the most dangerous communities. If we let the market sort it out, we have insurers refusing to write new policies in certain areas, Dr. Coringham said. We're not sure how that's in anyone's best interest other than insurers. California's woes resemble a slow-motion version of what Florida experienced after Hurricane Andrew devastated Miami in 1992. The losses bankrupted some insurers and caused most national carriers to pull out of the state. In response, Florida established a complicated system, a market based on small insurance companies backed up by Citizens Property Insurance Corporation a state-mandated company that would provide windstorm coverage for homeowners who couldn't find private insurance. For a while, it mostly worked. Then came Hurricane Irma. The 2017 hurricane, which made landfall in the Florida Keys as a Category 4 storm before moving up the coast, didn't cause a particularly great amount of damage, 
but it was the first in a series of storms, culminating in Hurricane Ian last October, that broke the model insurers had relied on. One bad year of claims, followed by a few quiet years to build back their reserves. Since Irma, almost every year has been bad. Private insurers began to struggle to pay their claims. Some went out of business. Those that survived increased their rate significantly. More people have left the private market for citizens, which recently became the state's largest insurance provider, according to Michael Peltier, a spokesman. But citizens won't cover homes with a replacement cost of more than $700,000, or $1 million in Miami-Dade County and the Florida Keys. That leaves those homeowners with no choice but private coverage, and in parts of the state, that coverage is getting harder to find, Mr. Peltier said. Florida, despite its challenges, has an important advantage, a steady influx of residents who remain, for now, willing and able to pay the rising cost of living there. In Louisiana, the rising cost of insurance has become, for some communities, a threat to their existence. Like Florida after Andrew, Louisiana's insurance market started to buckle after insurers began leaving following Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Then, starting with Hurricane Laura in 2020, a series of storms pummeled the state. Nine insurance companies failed. People began rushing into the state's own version of Florida's citizens' plan. The state's insurance market is in crisis, said Louisiana's insurance commissioner, James J. Donnellan. In December, Louisiana had to increase premiums for coverage provided by its citizens' plans by 63%, to an average of $4,700 a year. In March, it borrowed $500 million from the bond market to pay the claims of homeowners who had been abandoned when their private insurers failed, Mr. Donnellan said. The state recently agreed to new subsidies for private insurers, essentially paying them to do business in the state. Mr. Donnellan said he hoped that the subsidies would stabilize the market. But Jesse Keenan, a professor at Tulane University in New Orleans and an expert in climate adaptation and finance, said the state's insurance market would be hard to turn around. The high cost of insurance has begun to affect home prices, he said. In the past, it would have been possible for some communities, those where homes are passed down from generation to generation, with no mortgages required and no banks demanding insurance, to go without insurance altogether. But as climate change makes storms more intense, that's no longer an option. There's just not enough wealth in those low-income communities to continue to rebuild, storm after storm, Dr. Keenan said. Even as homeowners in coastal states face rising costs for wind coverage, they're being squeezed from yet another direction, flood insurance. In 1968, Congress created the National Flood Insurance Program, which offers taxpayer-backed coverage to homeowners. As with wildfires in California and hurricanes in Florida, the flood program arose from what economists call a market failure. Private insurers wouldn't provide coverage for flooding, leaving homeowners with no options. The program achieved its main goal of making flood insurance widely available at a price that homeowners could afford. But as storms became more severe, the program faced growing losses. In 2021, FEMA, which runs the program, began setting rates equal to the actual flood risk facing homeowners, an effort to better communicate the true danger facing different properties, and also to staunch the losses for the government. Those increases, which are being phased in over years, in some cases amount to enormous jumps in price. The current cost of flood insurance for single-family homes nationwide is $888 a year, according to FEMA. Under the new risk-based pricing, that average cost would be $1,808. And by the time current policyholders actually have to pay premiums that reflect that full risk, 
the impact of climate change could make them much higher. Properties located in high-risk areas should plan and expect to pay for that risk, said David Marstad, head of the flood insurance program. The best way for policymakers to help keep insurance affordable is to reduce the risk people face, said Caroline Kowski, Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. For example, officials could impose tougher building standards in vulnerable areas. Government-mandated programs, like the flood insurance plan, or citizens in Florida and Louisiana, were meant to be a backstop to the private market. But as climate shocks get worse, she said, we're now at the point where that's starting to crack. Why are food prices so high in Europe? By Esha Nelson, reporting from London. It is the most basic of staple food items, sliced white bread. In Britain, the average price of a loaf was 28% higher in April at £1.39, or $1.72, than it was a year earlier. In Italy, the price of spaghetti and other pasta, a fixture in the Italian diet, has risen nearly 17% from the year before. In Germany, the European Union's largest economy, cheese prices are nearly 40% higher than a year ago, and potatoes cost 14% more. Throughout the European Union, consumer food prices were on average nearly 17% higher in April than a year earlier, a slight slowdown from the previous month, which set the fastest pace of growth in over two and a half decades. The situation is worse in Britain than in its Western European neighbors. Food and non-alcoholic drink prices were up 19% higher, the quickest pace of annual food inflation in more than 45 years. By comparison, the annual rate of U.S. food inflation was 7.7%. Persistent food inflation is squeezing low-income households and troubling European politicians. In Italy, the government held a meeting this month to discuss soaring pasta prices. At the same time, the major costs that go into making food products, including fuel, wheat, and other agricultural commodities, have been falling in international markets for much of the past year raising questions about why food prices for consumers remain so high in Europe. And with rising labor costs and the possibility of profiteering, food prices are unlikely to come down anytime soon. More broadly, rising prices could also put pressure on central banks to keep interest rates high, potentially restraining economic growth. What is driving up food prices? Behind the sticker price for a loaf of bread includes the costs for not only key ingredients, but also processing, packaging, transport, wages, storage, and company markups. A United Nations index of global food commodity prices, such as wheat, meat, and vegetable oil, peaked in March 2022, immediately after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is one of the largest grain producers. The war disrupted grain and oil production in the region and had a global impact, too, worsening food crises in parts of East Africa and the Middle East. But the worst was avoided, in part because of a deal to export grain from Ukraine. European wheat prices have declined about 40% since last May. Global vegetable oil prices are down about 50%. But there is still a ways to go. The United Nations Food Price Index was 34% higher in April than its 2019 average. Aside from commodity prices, Europe has experienced particularly harsh increases in costs along the food supply chain. Energy prices soared because the war forced Europe to rapidly replace Russian gas with new supplies, pushing up the costs of food production, transportation, and storage. Though wholesale energy prices have fallen back down recently, retailers warn there's a long lag, 
perhaps up to a year, before consumers will see the benefits of that, because energy contracts were made months before, most likely reflecting those higher prices. And the tight labor markets in Europe with high job vacancy rates and low levels of unemployment are forcing employers, including food companies, to push up wages to attract workers. This in turn drives up costs for businesses, including in the food sector. Is profiteering keeping prices high? Suspicions are growing among consumers, trade unions, and some economists that inflation could be kept needlessly high by companies raising prices above their costs to protect profit margins. The European Central Bank said that at the end of last year, corporate profits were contributing to domestic inflation as much as wage growth, but it did not say if any industries had made excessive profits. Economists at Alliance, the German insurer and asset manager, estimate that 10 to 20% of food inflation in Europe can be attributed to profiteering. There is part of the food price inflation that we see which is not explainable easily, said Ludovic Sebrin, the chief economist at Alliance. But the lack of detailed data about corporate profits and supply chains has caused a rift in economic opinions. Some economists and food retailers have pointed fingers at big global food producers, which have sustained double-digit profit margins while raising prices. In April, the Swiss giant Nestle said it expected its profit margin this year to be about the same as it was last year, about 17%, while it reported raising prices almost 10% in the first quarter. Even taking into account expenses like transport and accounting for pricing lags from farms to shelves, Mr. Subran said he would have expected food inflation to come down by now. In Britain, some economists are telling a different story. Michael Saunders, an economist at Oxford Economics and former rate-setter at the Bank of England, said in a note to clients in May that greedflation was not the culprit. Most of the increases in inflation reflect the higher cost of energy and other commodities, he said. Rather than rising, total profits for non-financial companies in Britain, excluding the oil and gas industries, have fallen over the past year, he said. Britain's competition regulator also said that it hadn't seen evidence of competition concerns in the grocery sector, but that it was stepping up its investigation into cost-of-living pressures. Have food prices peaked? Despite well-publicized cuts to milk prices in Britain, food prices in general are unlikely to go down in the near future. Instead, policymakers are closely watching for a slowdown in the rate of increases. There are tentative signs that the pace of food inflation, the double-digit increases in annual prices, has reached its pinnacle. In April, the rate fell off in the European Union for the first time in two years. But the slowdown from here is likely to be gradual. It appears to be taking longer for food price pressures to work their way through the system this time than we had expected. Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, said this month, Across the continent, some governments are intervening by capping prices on food essentials, rather than waiting for the economic debates about corporate profiteering to play out. In France, the government is pushing an anti-inflation quarter, asking food retailers to cut prices on some products until June. But the finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, said this month that he wanted food producers to contribute more to the effort warning that they could face tax penalties to recover any margins unfairly made at the expense of consumers if they refuse to return to negotiations. These efforts may help some shoppers, but on the whole, there is little to comfort Europeans. Food prices are unlikely to decline. It's likely only that the pace of increases will slow later this year. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times and the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service.
U.S. Battery Subsidies Put Allies on Edge by Jack Ewing and Melissa Eddy. European leaders complained for years that the United States was not doing enough to fight climate change. Now that the Biden administration has devoted hundreds of billions of dollars to that cause, many Europeans are complaining that the United States is going about it the wrong way. That new critique is born of a deep fear in Germany, France, Britain, and other European countries that Washington's approach will hurt the allies it ought to be working with, luring away much of the new investments in electric car and battery factories not already destined for China, South Korea, and other Asian countries. That concern is the main reason some European leaders, including Germany's second-highest-ranking official, Robert Habeck, have beaten a path to Vesteros, a city about 60 miles from Stockholm that is best known for a Viking burial mound and a Gothic cathedral. Officials have been traveling there to court one of Europe's few homegrown battery companies, Northvolt. Led by a former Tesla executive, Northvolt is a small player in the global battery industry, but European leaders are offering it hundreds of millions of euros to build factories in Europe. Mr. Havik visited in February to lobby the company to push ahead on its plan to build a factory near Hamburg, Germany. The company had considered postponing to invest in the United States instead. It's definitely attractive to be in America right now, said Emma Nordheim, Northvolt's chief environmental officer. Northvolt declined to comment in detail on the discussions about the Hamburg plant, which the company committed to in May. The tussle over Northvolt's plants is an example of the intense, and some European officials say counterproductive, competition between the United States and Europe as they tried to acquire the building blocks of electric vehicle manufacturing to avoid becoming dependent on China, which dominates the battery supply chain. Auto experts said that the tax credits and other incentives offered by President Biden's main climate policy, the Inflation Reduction Act, had siphoned some investments from Europe and put pressure on European countries to offer their own incentives. The United States has provoked a massive subsidy race, Cecilia Malmström, a former European trade commissioner, said during a panel discussion last month at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. She called on leaders to jointly invest in the green transition and not compete against each other. Biden officials have argued that U.S. and European policies are complementary. They have noted that the government and private money going into electric cars and batteries would lower prices for car buyers and put more emission-free vehicles on the road. U.S. officials add that construction of battery factories and plants to process lithium and other materials is booming on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. Efforts by governments to promote electric vehicles will spur a degree of technological innovation and cost-cutting that will be beneficial not only to Europe and the United States, but to the global economy and to our global effort to meet the challenge that climate change presents, said Wally Adenemo, the Deputy Treasury Secretary. The Biden administration has also been talking with European officials about allowing cars made from European battery materials and components to qualify for U.S. tax credits. And the administration has interpreted the IRA, which Mr. Biden signed in August, to leave room for producers in Europe and elsewhere to benefit. You're seeing less of a concern from Europe that those companies may be lured away from Europe to America, said Abigail Wolf. She directs the Center for Critical Minerals Strategy at SAFE a nonprofit organization. Still, the law has forced European leaders to put new industrial policies in place. In March, the European Commission, the administrative arm of the European Union, 
proposed the Critical Raw Materials Act, legislation to ensure supplies of lithium, nickel, and other battery materials. One piece of the legislation calls for the EU to process at least 40% of the raw materials that the car industry needs within its own borders. The 27-nation alliance has also let countries provide more financial support to suppliers and manufacturers. The money that the United States and Europe are pouring into electric vehicles will encourage sales, said Julia Poliskanova, a senior director at Transport and Environment, an advocacy group in Brussels. The legislation, which will need the approval of the European Parliament and the leaders of EU countries, would also bring some coherence to the fragmented policies of national governments, she said. But Ms. Poliskanova added that European and U.S. policies risk cancelling each other out. Because everyone is scaling up at the same time, it's a zero-sum game, she said. Business executives have complained that applying for financial aid in Europe is bureaucratic and slow. The Inflation Reduction Act, with its emphasis on tax credits, is simpler and faster, said Time Einar Jensen, chief executive of the battery maker Freyr, which is building a factory in Moerana in northern Norway and has plans to construct more plants in Finland and near Atlanta. The IRA has prompted a dramatic increase in uptick in interest for batteries produced in the United States, Mr. Jensen said in an interview. The future of European auto manufacturing is at stake, particularly for German companies. Mercedes-Benz, BMW, and Volkswagen have already lost market share in China to local automakers like BYD. Chinese automakers, including BYD and SAIC, are also making inroads in Europe. Selling cars under the British brand MG, SAIC has amassed 5% of the European electric vehicle market, putting it ahead of Toyota and Ford in that fast-growing segment. European car makers are frantically trying to build the supply chains they need to churn out electric vehicles. In France, President Emmanuel Macron wants to convert a northern region where factory jobs have been in decline into a hub of battery production. On Tuesday, Automotive Sales Company, a joint venture between Stellantis, Mercedes-Benz, and Total Energies, inaugurated a factory in France that aims to produce 300,000 electric batteries annually by the end of 2024. ACC also plans to invest a total of 7.3 billion euros, or $7.8 billion, in Europe, including opening factories in Germany and in Italy, a deal sealed with 1.3 billion euros in public aid. In Stahlsgitter, Germany, some 25 miles from Volkswagen's headquarters, steel beams tower above concrete foundations as excavators and dump trucks hum nearby. In a matter of months, the outlines of a battery factory have risen out of a field. Volkswagen hopes to have battery-making machines installed before the end of the summer. By 2025, the automaker aims to produce battery cells for up to 500,000 electric vehicles a year a timeline that the company said was possible only because the factory was being built on land it owned. Volkswagen is also building a factory in Ontario, but the company made the decision to do so only after the Canadian government matched U.S. incentives. In Gubin, a small city on Germany's border with Poland, Rocktech Lithium, a Canadian company, is building a plant to process lithium ore. Mercedes has an agreement with Rocktech to supply lithium to its battery producers. These projects won't reach full production for several years. Recently, the Gubin site was an open field. The only construction activity was a truck that dumped loads of crushed rocks, making an ear-piercing screech. 
Europe has some advantages, including a strong demand for electric cars. About 14% of new cars sold in the EU in the first three months of this year were battery-powered, according to Schmidt Automotive Research, twice as many as in the United States. But if Europe doesn't move quickly to aid the battery industry, you will really lose momentum on the ground versus the North American market, said Dirk Harbeck, chief executive of Rocktech. Chinese battery companies have largely avoided the United States for fear of a political backlash. But Chinese battery firms have announced investments in Europe worth $17.5 billion since 2018, according to the Mercator Institute for China Studies and the Rhodium Group. Political tension between Western governments and China has put German car makers in a delicate position. They do not want to be overly dependent on Chinese supplies, but they cannot afford to displease the Chinese government. BMW, Volkswagen, and Volvo plan to buy cells from a factory in Arnstedt, Germany, run by KATL, a Chinese company that is currently the world's largest maker of electric vehicle batteries. To balance their reliance on Chinese suppliers, European executives and leaders are keen to work with Northvolt, whose chief executive, Peter Carlson, oversaw Tesla's supply chain for more than four years. Northvolt wants to control all the steps of making batteries, including refining lithium and recycling old cells. That should help Europe achieve supply chain independence and ensure that batteries are produced in the most environmentally responsible way possible, said Ms. Narenheim, who is also a member of the Northvolt management board. We're de-risking Europe, she said. The company develops manufacturing techniques at its complex in Vesteris. Northvolt's first full-scale factory at a site in Sweden 125 miles south of the Arctic Circle, chosen for its abundant hydropower, is the size of the Pentagon. Northvolt also plans to build a U.S. factory, but has not yet announced a site. Still, the company is ramping up production and is not among the world's top 10 battery suppliers, according to SNE Research, a consulting firm. And construction on its Hamburg plant is on hold until EU officials approve German subsidies. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the June 1st, 2023 edition of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jeremy Morlock. Thank you for listening.